my goal is really to get the questions to my guests. It's based on the concept that, you know, that I mentioned, like, which is like, if you're authentic to yourself and you take an intentional journey to decide who you want to be as a leader, then you're also going to be successful. Podcast Junkies, episode 281. Apologies ahead of time for the slight echo in the room. This is one of several takes for this intro, so I've tried to tweak it a little bit, but um, it is what it is, as they say in the world of podcasting. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. This is the place where we have interesting, fascinating conversations with people who are getting started, have been podcasting for years, and are just finding their stride, the whole gamut, and this episode is no different. In case you missed last week's episode, we spoke to Anna Fermanoff. She's the founder of Fermanoff Marketing Consulting and the host of the Modern Startup Marketing Podcast, a fascinating deep dive into all things marketing as it relates to podcasting. That's definitely one that you need to have a pencil and a paper out to take copious notes as that was a really value-packed episode. Make sure you check that out. In this episode, we speak to Dino Cataneo. He's the host of the Authentic Leadership for Everyday People podcast, a show that investigates the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. And in this episode, we talk about his background from growing up in Milan to his time at Harvard Business School to eventually breaking out on his own as an entrepreneur and marketing consultant. Dino talks to what inspired him to launch his podcast and why he chose the topic of authentic leadership. He recalls experiences he's had with effective leaders and why the mentors throughout his career have left a lasting mark on him. And finally, he talks about how he's grown as an interviewer and a podcast host and what's next for him and his show. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording, the 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right and the link will be in the show notes as well. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag, but for now let's get into this conversation with Dino. So Dino Cataneo, host of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me, Harry. So we were just um, talking a little bit about one of the outcomes of the pandemic is um, more people working from home, so trying to get better connections. And now with people doing podcast interviews and people using video on podcast interviews, right? it seems like uh, more and more bandwidth. And the good thing is about this new apartment we're in here in Minneapolis, it's uh, fiber. So it's cool. So if you, when I plug the, the, the laptop directly into the wall, I get close to 900. You know, it's you can see that it's getting to one gigabit, which is fun to see. <laughs> yeah, I think we all had a moment like probably around April or May of last year when we had to like, okay, the short-term fixes need to be long-term fixes and all had to kind of like upgrade the infrastructure. As I mentioned earlier, I had two college-age kids going to school every day. My wife was a college professor at the time. She's a songwriter, but she also taught at Berkeley College of Music and I was working and yeah, the uh, forces very quickly to figure out how to have four different video streams <laughs> basically going on six or seven hours a day in four different rooms of the house. Uh, one of my friends who lives back home in New York, they've got a big house, four kids, a uh, huge family, and he would have to turn off the internet, I think, at night because I think he was just, or he had ways to toggle like certain routers or something like that. Because <laughs> he's like, okay, like time to turn it off or else, I mean, if, if it's just Wi Fi, I imagine 
modern homes probably need gigabit at a, at a minimum nowadays. So I know a lot has been said and spoken about the effects of the pandemic. So just to kind of kick it off on a high note, when you think about the past year, year and a half, what are some things that are top of mind for you, some, some takeaways? Well, I think, you know, the biggest takeaway is, you know, I think it forced me to really take a stock and realize actually how lucky I am to, you know, I think like the most basic thing is recognizing how incredibly lucky I am to have a wife that I love and two kids that I love and that I actually enjoy spending time with her, them. And so, you know, just that alone to be, to get along with the people you're forced into a small space was, that was a, that was a really big recognition. And I think on a, on a personal business note, I think the pandemic for me hit at a time when I was making a little bit of a transition between the services that I was developing. I, you know, before the pandemic, I was starting to transition from doing digital marketing consulting to getting to coaching. And I think the pandemic forced me to do maybe the things that I do less of, you know, take really taking the time to plan how to market myself. I launched this podcast in the pandemic. I mean, I launched it before, but I started taking it seriously around April and March. And, you know, just to full disclosure, that's when you and I started working together. You know, people should know that Harry and his fabulous company, Fullcast, have been helping me with the podcast for the past uh, six months. Just bringing more focus into what is important. I think that that's the biggest effect of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that idea of taking things for granted and not realizing like uh, like we have all the time in the world and, and then also relationships because I, I we moved to a bigger apartment. We were in a basically studio loft and when you're a couple there, you very quickly figure out <laughs> if you're going to be able to get along or not. And I, I think, you know, obviously we've gone to therapy as well, so I'm a big proponent of that. And I think just swallowing your learning how to like swallow your pride and, and realizing when it's your ego talking and just you know deciding like do i want to take the, the high road here and even though you know i'm trying i would normally try to save face you know just what's the best way to handle this this situation for the benefit of the long-term relationship if in fact you feel like you have the right partner so it's been it's been interesting like ego check reality check and i think for, for couples that have made it through, I, I get a feeling that they're probably a bit stronger as a result of it. Yeah. And something else, I think, you know, of the, one of the good things that have come out of the pandemic for us is our families are, both my wife's family and my family are very dispersed. My family is in Italy and my wife's family is in various parts of the U.S. And I think as everybody started getting on Zoom, we both started weekly family calls, you know, just to check in with each other. And, you know, these calls are still going and it's a way for us to stay in touch with our, with our relatives that are far away with a much more disciplined way. You know, once again, connection that used to be taken for granted. And now it's like, you know, it's great to actually be in touch on a regular basis. Have you done any traveling? I have done a little bit of traveling. I was able, after I got vaccinated and once my whole family was vaccinated, my family in Italy, I, I, the first week of June, I was able to go and spend a week with my mother and my father, which I had not seen since uh, November of 2019. And that was great. And then I did, I was in Nashville for a podcast movement. Oh, yeah, that's right. We can, we can talk a little bit about that. 
So what part of Italy did you, were you born and grew up in? I grew up in Milan, uh, which is in the northern part of Italy. It's the industrial, fast-paced, finance town. Fashion capital. <laughs> yeah. It's basically where, you know, all the a-holes are. <laughs> so I was like, when I when I moved to the U.S., I moved to New York, and people were like, oh, I'm right at home. This, yeah. These are my people. Well, that's true, because if you can get used to living in the big city, it's not such a, a big adjustment. I grew up just outside New York City and, and lived there like three or four different times, so... I love crowds. I love big cities. Uh, and once you get used to that, it's if you're from a small town, I think it's a, it's a harder adjustment. Very jarring. What's your fondest memory of growing up in Milan? I think I would say the one thing that is very different that I noticed from my peers here is because of our system, our education system, where you end up staying in the same. You know, if you're if Milan is all the university, whatever you want to study, they have it, and so. You stay at home until you're 25, you live with your parents, but also you're in the same group of friends. You know, I, I have friends that have been my friends from when I was 11 until when I was 25, when I moved back here and I'm still in touch with them. And I think there is a, you know, you end up with, I would say with sort of like as the schools overlap between the different districts of the city, you end up with this group of like, I don't know five, six hundred people that are acquaintances of yours because, you know, I went to middle school with somebody who went to elementary school with another friends and then I went to one high school, my friend went to another high school and those group merged and then as we get into university, we're still in touch, but at university we're meeting new people and everything overlaps. And so I think there's a familiarity and a connection, like even in a big town like Milan, there's sort of a familiarity and a connection that here you would have to be in a really small town to have, you know, like I go back, I used to go back once a year before the pandemic and I see people that I've been seeing since the seventies, you know, and I, I may have not, you know, I will run into somebody I haven't seen in three years, but it's like, I've seen them yesterday because these connections are very deep because they've been built over a long number of years. How much of the food do you miss? I think that there's been you know, my standards have lowered a little bit since the 90s, <laughs> but the U.S., I think food in this country has made wonderful progress between the 90s and today. I think there's a generation of chefs, you know, the chefs that started coming of age in the early 90s and chefs that would go and study in different traditions. And then there's a real cool blend of, you know, I think there's a, there's a strand of cuisine in America, which is people that have studied multiple traditions and have mixed up, you know, like Mediterranean Vietnamese or, and, and the fusion. it's a, and it's something that it's part of like the contemporary culture of the U S and make the country what it is right now. So yeah, I may not find like a perfectly Italian dish here, but there's a lot of other good offerings. So I don't miss it as much. And so when did you first land in the United States? I moved here in 1990. I was I graduated from university to study economics, and I was supposed to stay in the U.S. for a couple of years. And then I met my wife, and so we started dating. So I needed to stay an extra year to figure out where that was going. <laughs> then we got married. Then I went to business school, and so it started being this thing. Well, we're like you know. In about three years, we'll figure out what we do. And it's always like, you know, in, in about three years, we'll figure out what we do. And we have this running joke that I will be, <laughs> you know, 95 in some retirement home in Arizona. And the nurse is like, you know, don't mind Dino. He thinks he's moving to Italy in three years. 
I imagine uh, I've talked about this with my partner as well. I think this idea of how other cultures take better care of their elderly. And I'm wondering if you think about that, and I, I wonder about my parents as well. But when you think about like even places like Italy, I, I was born in El Salvador, and I imagine there's some aspect of, of taking care of like your elderly, your grandparents there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm very lucky. My brother lives close to my parents and he plays a big role in, in their care. So, yeah. but I think that what's interesting to me is that I think that there's a lot of that here too, is just in, you know, maybe like in the smaller towns or in the other places, there's definitely people who are taking care of their parents. I think there's a, I think there's a part of the population here that is very migratory. You know, you go to college and then maybe you get your first job in a different town, et cetera, and you may end up far from your parents. But there's also a large portion of the population that ends up staying in the same town and growing up and they're close to their family. So I think it, it's half and half. So uh, major in economics, was, was that the, the thought, the idea that you're going to get a, a job? in? <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not want to do economics. It was kind of one of those where... I want to be either a musician or an actor okay. or a novelist. Uh, my, my parents are like, no, you need to get something where you can get the job afterwards. They don't know, but I thought I was coming to New York, auditioning for a band on The Village Voice and become a rock star. Didn't happen, <laughs> but I married a musician, so that's as close as, as that got. No, I think, I don't know, I think I started thinking about what I wanted to do probably a lot later in my life than I should have. So I got on this path, I, you know, I... I ended up getting a job in an investment bank in New York, going to Harvard Business School, going into consulting, and then going into a major digital agency and spent 12 years in digital agencies. And then it had like a stint at a, a company where I was digital marketing officer and they were owned by a private equity shop. And then midway through that, like about a year and a half into that, I realized that I didn't want to do what, <laughs> what I was doing <laughs> and that you know, there's a statistic in the first year in business school at Harvard Business School, they give us this questionnaire, this survey, and they say, you know, do you think that you will have made enough money to retire 10 years out of school? And then the next day, they come and they tell you, yeah, you know, we ask this question every year and the results are always the same. 80% of the students think that they're going to be able to retire in 10 years, <laughs> but only 20% make it. And you know, obviously at that moment, you're like, yeah, I'm going to be one of the 20%. But <laughs> it, everybody thinks that, I'm sure. Yeah. And then, but at some point, about eight or nine years ago, I realized that, you know, I was not going to be one of those. And that if I want, like, the idea of working until I had made enough money to just do the things that I wanted to do was not a feasible plan. That, like, I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do way back then. And so, I made a decision to go and start out on my own as a marketing consultant with the idea that 60% of my time would be dedicated to that and the other 40% would be dedicated to managing my wife's career as a musician, okay. spending more time with my kids who had just started high school at that point, and then doing the things that I love doing, which is skiing. So for five years, I was a part-time ski instructor at a small mountain near Boston where I would go and teach a couple of days a week and then study music. And so that's what I did. Renaissance man. <laughs> I would say, I like to think more of it as, uh, you know, taking the gift in my ADHD. <laughs> yeah, just uh, follow your passion wherever it might lead. 
you know, I think it's interesting. We live in um in a culture where you're told that in order to be successful, you really need to specialize. But I think that, you know, there's the, that expression, jack of all trades, master of none. I like to think myself of, you know, jack of a bunch of trades and master of three or four. And, and you know, and I think that the ability to bring in expertise in a four or five different fields helps me and helps the people who work with me. That's a constant reminder for me because I'm just waiting for that. Through, through in COVID, I said, I'm going to start to learn the piano. <laughs> so, and then we were going to move and I was like, okay, now that we're here, there's no more excuses. And I'm going to keep talking about it on the podcast because if it doesn't happen, I can, I'll get called out on it. So <laughs> now that we're settled in, that's going to be something I want to pick up. My, uh, my partner's an accomplished musician. She plays guitar, trumpet. <laughs> so, so uh, It's fabulous. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering what were the initial steps into like being an entrepreneur? Like what, what was that like? Well, for me, it was the idea that I had spent the past 20 years in services, essentially, because I worked in investment banking, I worked in consulting, I worked in advertising as an account manager and strategist. And, you know, along the way, I picked up a number of skills, including the ability to scope and sell services. And so it was basically doing the same thing that I was doing before, but doing it on my own and, and being, on one hand, being more selective about the type of clients that I worked with because I needed less. You know, if you're an SVP and an agency, like the agency needs a certain amount of revenue every year to pay for rent, to pay for the employees, et cetera. If you are working for yourself and you're only hiring contractors to execute, you know, you have the ability to say no to certain projects that are on, in the gray area. And so I had an initial client that I was working with and that was my, uh, sort of launching pad. And because I was trying to work only 60% of my time, you know, the type of projects and engagement, you know, I could have one or two different engagements at the same time at the most. And generally, you know, you work with your client and the engagement repeats itself. So that gave me the luxury of, at the time, not needing really to market myself too much because I needed one or two clients a year at the most. And I had I'd been in this industry for 20 years and I had connections and, and friends and former colleagues or peers or clients that I could work with. So. Were there some uh, folks that you would consider mentors that you learned some stuff with, some stuff from along the way? Yes, absolutely. I would say there are a lot of mentors that I've had in the past 10 years. The been very fortunate. I would say, you know, the, the one person that comes to mind is Arit Gadish, who is she was the chairman of Bain. In my first, when I started out at Bain, one of the assignments that I had was to help her, help her write her speeches for the World Economic Forum at Davos. And I had the opportunity to see her work in the team. And, and I think like the biggest lesson that I got is, you know, this is, at the time, she was probably one of the top 50 women in business for Fortune. She's an incredibly smart and accomplished woman. And yet, she treats everybody like an equal. You know, I was several levels below her in the organization. I never felt she always made me feel like an equal. She listened to my opinions, sometimes asked them, you know, sometimes she would take them, sometimes she didn't, but she never made the weight of her, the fact that she was the chairman and I was 
a fairly junior person, you know, and she was the same way with me as she was with some of the senior partners in the room. And I think that was like one of the biggest lessons on how you create and motivate the team because you can imagine like you're in there and you're like, oh, I'm an equal. Like I want to give my best, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another person that really taught me a lot is David Adelman, who was uh, my um, my first manager. He was running, the, ended up running the or being like a very senior member of the strategy practice at Digitas and then went to McKinsey had been a BCG. He really taught me the process of, and, and when I say he taught me, it's like by looking at him, the process of selling in services. The, there's like, there's a very important balance when you're building a service practice, whether it's a consulting practice or an agency. And that is that you need to sell projects where on one hand, you have the ability to execute already and you're good at but you also need, there needs to be something new that you haven't done because that's how you build the capabilities of the firm. Interesting. And it takes like a very unique talent to understand where is that line? Where are you promising your client something that is below your capability and you know where you need to stop it? And David, aside from being probably one of the smartest marketers that I've ever worked with, had a magic touch at this. He also had a really keen sense on how to orchestrate different people on a team, like in an agency where there's like there's a strategy person, there's a technology person, there's a creative person, and really getting everybody to work together and giving the right space to them, both internally and in front of the client. That was a masterful lesson. You know, Kathy Dyer, also somebody at Digitas who was a uh, I was running one of our client teams and I think the way, you know, it goes back to the same, the way that she treated everybody, right? The way that you always felt treated like an equal, you know, there was all like, the expectations were always very clear, but there was never leverage applied. You know, there's like the, and the other thing is like, as the most senior person on the team, she would always let all the credit flow through, right? And so- mm, That's interesting, that's good. In the whole team, she created a culture where if I am running a team and my team does something really good for, for the client, I don't need to go around and say how good I have been, right? I need to go around and say how good the junior designer was in coming up with a certain design and like really give credit to everybody that has contributed to the team. And I think that is, you know, that's a really important lesson. If you're, if you start to build an expanded teams, like nobody wants to work for the leader who is sucking all the oxygen in the room and who is taking all the credit, right? And people that have been listening and I'm sure that have been in, in the business world long enough know people like that, know people who, who just think for themselves or just taking all the credit. and Exactly. Yeah. And they don't go far. <laughs> no, and, and you know, it's like it just creates a completely different and it creates a culture of trust among the team because you know that you're not going to be rewarded for trying to show that you're better than your peer next door, right? Because the expectation is that we're all working and succeeding together and we're giving credit to where credit is due. And if anything, as a, you know, we're giving more credit to the people on our team that we're taking ourselves as leaders. And that that's like a really important principle in leadership at least you know these are 
I don't want to say that these are absolute principles. I'm saying like these are the things that I took with me, you know, from these leaders. Like all these people, like someone else that comes to mind is uh, Wendy Miller, who was the ended up being the CMO at Bain. And I worked with her when I was working with Reed. Like all these people had an incredible amount invested in the development and the success of the people who worked for them. They really genuinely cared that I got better at doing what I did, that I succeeded. And when you feel a leader that is really doing that in a genuine way, it's a completely different way of working. Because I mean, we've all, you know, like I've worked, I've worked both in a number of organizations, both as a member of the organization, or I have had an opportunity to see a lot of organizations where my clients were and see the, you know, a lot of different models. And ultimately the places that are more innovative and that are, you know, that retain people or the people that, that where there's a culture that is really invested in the success of the people. Yeah, it's really interesting because those folks stand out. And I mean, just the fact that you remember those, all those people by name just speaks to how much of an impact they've had on your career. And so it's a, it's a fantastic segue because the podcast is called uh, Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. So um, I'm curious about a couple of things. One is when podcasts started to become on, on your radar and then as they did, how the idea started to bubble up for this show. Yeah, so interestingly, podcasts have been on my radar for a number of years. And I've had these, you know, I love music. My wife is a musician. And I always thought that I would start a music podcast where I would interview all my favorite musicians, etc. But never got going. I mentioned that during the pandemic, I made it, you know, I was making a transition from doing digital marketing consulting to transition to executive coaching and leadership. And, you know, what as I was crystallizing who I want to be as a coach, I had, you know, I said, okay, my mission is to help people be their authentic selves. Because when you live according to your values and make your decisions, both at work and in your life, according to your values, and you're very conscious with that, you're more successful. And somebody said, well, that's a great mission, but are you being authentic to yourself? And that caused a lot of self-reflection and the answer was no and one of the things that you know i felt was really important like i always wanted to be a to have a creative component to my work i have worked part-time as a journalist at different times of my career i've written for the italian economic news agency in the early 90s i've been a music reviewer and like i felt that i want you know a podcast was essentially the place where i could be my true self and and just create the podcast and share the content to really express what I believe about sort of how leaders should work and operate. And, you know, it's no coincidence that a couple of the people that I mentioned were the first two or three people that I asked to be on my podcast. And so, uh, all, the, all the people that have been mentioned have requests from me to be on my podcast, and hopefully I'll have them all. But that was sort of the the impetus to have like this conversation that felt important about who I was and, you know, and, and then when I made the decision, I think I was having a conversation with somebody and the expression authentic leadership for the everyday people came out in some context. And I had a moment like, that's the podcast. And so I had to launch it. And it's funny, you mentioned that you're always telling 
on the podcast that you're going to start playing piano <laughs> so that you're forced to it. I use a metaphor, which is as a kid, I loved to jump. You know, we, I, I grew up in Italy near the Mediterranean. So there's a lot of places where there are tall rocks that you can jump in the sea from. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's a terrifying experience, but I always wanted to do it. And there's the concept that if you just launch yourself, then you're not going to be able to stop. It's going to happen. And so I was talking to Judy Fox, who is a, a fabulous LinkedIn consultant that I was talking to about like, how should I you know, do my profile, what ideas she had for me. And I was talking to her about the podcast and she said, you know, instead of asking people all the questions about how to do it and then do it, you should do that publicly. And so I posted a picture of a, a guy jumping from a rock in the sea. I said, okay, I'm announcing the podcast. Now I can't back up. <laughs> and, then, and then like all the questions that I had for experts, I did research. I'm like, okay, I'm going to crowdsource this. What should you record with? And that's where I tried Squadcast. I tried some of the other people. I'm like, oh, I've chosen. So I posted, I chose Squadcast. That's why I use it. And so that became my journey towards a podcast of like forcing myself by sharing these things that I was doing. I'm like, well, okay, now I got to go interview somebody. <laughs> and then now I need to find a host and I need to post it. So yeah. So what were the, some of the early thoughts around what the format was going to be? Um, you know, obviously... Every new podcaster who's doing interviews starts with their list of questions. I did as well. And then you sort of find your own voice. So where were you looking for inspiration or how are you thinking about that? So somebody else that I want to give a lot of credit to is a guy named Nick Zaino, who is, he writes for comedy. He's a comedy critic for the Boston Globe. He's a great musician himself and a podcaster. He has a podcast called The Department of Tangents. And I was talking to him and he's like, you need to get this book by Eric Nazem. It's called, I think it's called Make Noise. Make Noise, yeah. <laughs> so good. And so the first sec, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this book. It's going to tell me all the microphones that I need to get. So, right? And the first section of the book, it doesn't talk about anything tactical. <laughs> yeah. It talks about, can you describe your podcast in 10? 10 words, yeah. Yes. What do you want out of your podcast? You know, what is the, what is the voice? Who is the character? What's the story? Well, this is how you do voice, character, or story in an interview format. And it forced me to a lot of reflection. So I basically decided that I wanted a podcast where I am not the main voice. My goal is really to get the questions to my guests. It's based on the concept that, you know, that I mentioned, like, which is like if you're authentic to yourself and you take an intentional journey to decide who you want to be as a leader then you're also going to be successful. And so there's a section of the podcast where I have a general set of questions that revolve around how my guest has come to define who they are as leaders, what do they value in leaders, what do they expect. And then, you know, one of the slight changes that has happened as I went forward, like I realized, well, this person is also an expert in something, right? And so at the beginning of the of the like in June, I, I interviewed Armin Molavi, who runs two trade magazines for the hotel industry. I'm like, okay, the pandemic is being lifted. I have to ask him about, we're in June. You know, I have to ask him, what is the industry thinking about travel? What are the expectations? What are the predictions? And so 
there's a second part of the podcast, which is also about bringing people the expertise that they that my guests have. I always try to like somebody who was going to be a guest asked me this great question, and the question was. So when somebody had listened to our episode, what do you want them to do? And it's like, oh, what do I want to do, people, as a result of listening to my episode? And I think that, you know, the answer for me is like, in an ideal world, somebody who listens to one episode of my podcast will be inspired to go and figure out, am I, you know, working and living my life according to my principles, my values? Am I doing what I want to do? And am I measuring success? based on what's important to me. Because like a, a really important theme that goes through the podcast is trying to figure out, are you measuring your success based on your compensation and your status, or is there something more important? And it's really like a, it's a question that I ask without judgment. I don't ask the question directly, but like, you know, there are people who are really truly motivated by money, right? And that's great. Like they want to make a lot of money. They want to be number one. And that's what's true to them. And that's great for them. But I think that there's a lot of other people who maybe don't care about that that much, but they feel that that's what they should be doing because that's the expectation from society, right? And I think the people who are able to get past the expectations that society or their family have for them and then define success on their own terms ultimately end up having also financial and career success. And so I talk about the journey. And so the second thing that I want somebody to ask about as themselves at the podcast is like, am I measuring, like, am I doing the things that I'm doing for the right reasons? And if the answer is no, what should I be doing? And then I want to have practical advice. So a lot of, you know, I always ask my guests, what's some practical advice? And then I have, a, I have a lighter section that has to do more with the personality because I believe that, you know, we are, there's a tenet in coaching, which is that you always coach the whole person. And so I have a part of the conversation where I ask my guests, what are their personal hobbies and how that impacts their work world? I have a, my favorite part of the podcast, which I put in as, because I was being a little bit of a smart ass. And it's this question, what is a business cliche? or a jargon expression that drives you crazy. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be a funny section. And second episode, I'm interviewing Kathy Dyer, and I'm like, so Kathy, what's a business cliche that drives you crazy? She said, you know, Dino, you know what drives me crazy? Have you ever heard a company saying, our goal is to exceed our customers' expectations? To me, that's somebody who punted on strategy because you know, your job as a company is to set your customers' expectations and let them know what they are. And that interview, which was the second episode, and even the first had a great things, like all of a sudden I was getting all these really deep insights from this question where people say, I hate this and I hate it because, and it was so good that- That's great. And for the 4th of July, instead of doing my regular episode, I basically went back and just put together all the answers into a single episode. So, Well, I think that speaks to you learning and becoming a better interviewer and not getting fixed in this rigid like format. And so my question to you is, you know, you're about 16, 17 episodes in terms of recordings. So how 
how have you grown as an interviewer or what have, what have you changed in terms of what you did when you first started? I think that it's an excellent question. I think I'm probably trying to let it flow a little more. I still try to stick with the overall format and story of the episode because I think that people know that, you know, people know that at some point we'll go. But I think that, you know, I think the biggest change is the one being where, where I realized that if I was just asking people how they were at, as leaders and what was important about the leadership, you know, at some point it was going to get stale. And so the bringing in then their personal experience and, you know, what is unique about whatever it's a business or, you know, and, and I have some guests that are not business people that do other types of leadership, but that was probably the biggest change. Have you found that conversations sometimes go in unexpected directions? Yes. How does that feel when it happens? Most of the time, great. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like Christmas. It's like a dance. Like you, No, but it's like, oh, I thought I was getting this. And then you open the box and there's so much more, right? It's like, oh, this is really interesting. And, you know, and I think one of the other parts is as an interviewer that probably I'm still working on but learning is like understanding when like if something feels right but is not necessarily within the script to just go with it and let it flow because if it's feeling if it's feeling good yeah yeah I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the day for me when I have these interviews because it's my ability to see how I, what I can do to connect with another human being in a genuine way and I've, you know, I'm up to 200 and almost getting on 280 with this podcast, almost 40 with my other podcast. And so, you know, over 300 interviews, I, I remember just my parents would sit me in front of the TV to watch like 60 minutes and like 2020 and all these like iconic interviewers. And it's it's just an interesting skill to, to learn to be able to like have a conversation with, with someone you may not know much about or a topic you may not know much about. But I think... The skill is helpful, and I and I feel from a podcasting perspective, as much as like everyone wants to have like the, their show be like the next number one interview based show. I think this this activity of people talking to other people, it feels to me like overall it's a it's a positive thing because that, that just means it's like multiplied out exponentially. More people are getting to know more people because of podcast interviews if they're genuine if they're making a real connection and i just feel like energetically like that's a good thing yeah i feel the same way i feel like you know after i've interviewed somebody for my podcast i then i you know i follow them on linkedin when they have a success i feel like oh you know i'm so excited for them <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's like I, you root for them you have all these people that have been kind enough to give you some of their time and are part of your journey yeah and I think having the platform is is like some it's just it just feels like it's so good for me to be able to say I want to have a conversation with that person if they've got a podcast that's the only common denominator I need for for this show and then I'm just like hey but it's it's really for me I feel like sometimes for me it's just like I want to know the person and it's a and if I see that in then I, I it's it's easier than just to say hey would you you never met me before, but you want to talk. So you have this like vehicle, this platform to get to know people that you admire in the space. So with that being said, as you think about where you want to take this show and some possible like, you know, put it out there for the universe, like bigger names that you want to have on the show, what comes to mind? Wow. Because dreams happen on Podcast Junkies, by the way. Cause <laughs> yeah. 
I've had past guests uh, mention something that they, they want done or a special ask. And, and I don't know why, but sometimes it happens. And so now I'm, I'm calling it the podcast junkies effect. Well, you know, I would say the dream would be <laughs> if I have to, to shoot high, it would be, you know, to get Obama or, you know, Kamala Harris or some of these people who have gone through this journey against pretty hard odds and got into these positions. You know, I think I would love, you know, one, definitely something, somebody that I don't, I have not figured out who that person is, but I would love, I think as I think about the expansion for the type of guests I want to have, I think I'd love to have a couple of politicians that still believe in the fact that they're doing this for civil service, that truly believe it. Because I think that in the you know one of the things that have happened in the past 30 years is we have vilified politicians and journalists who are you know and then granted there are bad politicians but like ultimately they're essential for the functioning of democracy and so i think that a lot of people who you know in the 50s 60s would have gone into politics have chosen to go into business because the rewards are not the same and the costs, the personal costs are much higher. And so I have a lot of admiration and respect, like, you know, a young politician, like somebody like, I don't know, Alexander Alessio-Cortez or, you know, that is really going into politics with a mission to change the world and with a true sense of service. You know, and obviously, I guess by now your listeners may have figured out where I lean, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's important, to, and I, I would, uh, you know, guide you as well to put that Dream 100 out, you know, put it on a, open up that, that notebook, that Google sheet, and just put the names in every day. Maybe you've got one name, maybe you've got, you've got three names now, but maybe as you start to add to it. And I think there's something to that, putting that intention out, and it's the six degrees of separation, you know, I think. Uh, like, uh, I have some names on my Trello, not good, these good. three names, but I have some <laughs> other, some other dream names. So that, yeah, that's good. So it's good to let us know when those happen because we always want to celebrate those wins. Yeah, absolutely. So what moves you to continue with the show? Like what's your primary motivation? So that's an excellent question. And it goes a little bit to the external versus internal motivation. Sure. I think, you know, having spent 10 years looking at my wife and all our friends who are musicians and professional musicians, what I have seen is that, you know, the arts are a really difficult world from a success standpoint and the people who end up staying for the durations are the people that are rewarded by the creative process that ultimately of course everybody wants success, but ultimately like you know they'll put out a song they'll put out a record because they needed to do the record and so as long as i am enjoying the process to record the podcast as long as i feel that i am creating something that is important to me i'm going to keep doing it and I think that, you know, as I said, like the podcast is really a way to express my voice and who I am. So that's exciting. What was your biggest takeaway from podcast movement? I think like the biggest takeaway was how important podcast guesting is. That was a, and then that's from a tactical standpoint. I think if I need to look at it from a sort of macro standpoint, I think that a lot of people look at how many people are jumping into podcasting and think that, you know, oh, I'm too late. 
But I think that if you look at where the industry is, and especially if you look at how the broader world is looking at podcasting, and by that I mean like the infrastructure that is being built for advertisers to actually effectively use podcasts, the investments that larger corporations are making into podcasts, like as an audio channel, like it reminds me a little bit, you know, I was lucky enough to be through the digital marketing growth, like from 2001 through, you know, from the building of websites, when paid search started to happen, et cetera. And I feel that right now, the place where the podcasting is, it's almost like when we were getting close to that inflection point where digital advertising became more important than, you know, print or, and I think that you could look at this as, oh, I am too late. It's already big. Or you're like, oh, I am about to get on the next big wave. And, you know, I mean, I don't have expectations to become the next Mark Maron or, and I'm doing this for myself, but I do think that it's an industry that is going through a growth on a lot of areas. And it was very eye-opening for me to be at Podcast Movement and hear from, you know, the the evolution of the analytics, the information that is available now, how brand, you know, see, hearing all the brands that talk about how they use podcasting, how they measure success, how they get to the audience is like, oh, this is really... You know, this is like a channel that over the next three to four years, people are going to look at very differently. Yeah, it was, it's exciting to, to see that growth it's on so many fronts. I started my show in 2014. I thought I was late because I was interviewing people who started in 2006 and 2008. And I was at the very first podcast movement, which is a Kickstarter. They were trying to raise $10,000 to like have the event in like a hotel in, in Texas. They quickly sold out of that and they had to upgrade. And it's been so fascinating and inspiring to see what the team has done uh so hats off to dan franks and uh jared easley gary leland the folks that got it started and i imagine next year uh, if and when you go you're gonna see like the true like the podcast movement at full sp at, at full capacity is something <laughs> to behold so i'm looking forward to connect with a lot of my friends too because it now becomes like a high school reunion for me because I, <laughs> I just go see old friends and you'll experience that too there's probably people you met and then you'll go back and reconnect with them yeah, I was. I actually told to Jared. I was on his. He interviewed me for his podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying that you know I've been to obviously marketing conferences, and there's this wonderful experience. The first time you go to a conference, right? It's all about the content, right? Because it's brand new to you. You go to all the panels, all the sessions, <laughs> and then you start meeting people, and then the second time, you start re-seeing the same people, and then. And they're like, oh, this is kind of like, it's a community. It's my people, you know, you know, and, and I love, I would say I love the podcasting community because it's, uh, it's still small enough that it feels like you can make a lot of genuine connections. Yeah, that's one thing that stood out for me as well. Just the genuine friendships and connections I've made over the years. And it's something I definitely value. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? This is going to sound shallow, but... I am a rabid Milan fan, and there's a player named Ibrahimovic who played for Milan briefly, but mostly played for teams that were playing against Milan and that I was always not a fan of. And they, he's like 38. He came back last year, and I thought it would have been a terrible decision, and it would have ruined the team, and begrudgingly, he has actually been tremendously helpful. So... 
yes, I had to give up and accept that it was a good decision <laughs> to have him on the team. That's good. Sometimes you, you need that perspective change. I love the question because it just people have given me a, a wide variety of answers. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? I'm hoping that it's changing a little bit, but I think that for a really long time when I was, you know, in investment banking, consulting and advertising was that I was a business number person first and I've always considered myself more of a creative person. Very good. Before I forget, what's your wife's name so we can get uh, some plug for, for music? <laughs> her name is Susan Catane, which is difficult to say, but if people want to find her, I bought the URL susanmusic.com, which is redirected to her site so that when we tell somebody, how do you find me? susanmusic.com. So you manage all the digital channels for her as well? I did. <laughs> Not very well. Yeah. You know, speak action, speaking of things that I changed my mind recently, I used to think that I had to do all, the, you know, I'm working in digital marketing for like 20 years. I should be managing everything for you. And actually, we got some help. And that was a good idea. I read a, a book recently called uh, Who, Not How. It's from uh, Dan Sullivan, and he worked with another guy. I forgot the author's name. But the author basically wrote the book with Dan Sullivan's teachings. Dan Sullivan had nothing to do with it, but he's <laughs> listed as an author. But it's this concept of like, as you become grow as a business owner, you st the question you should be asking is not, how do I do this? Is who can do this for me? And that's been pretty eye-opening for me recently as well. Yes. Yeah, somebody recently said that People who invest money to save time have a longer career in business than people who invest time to save money. That's a good one as well. I'll be using that. Well, Dino, thanks for this uh, entertaining conversation. Thank you. And thank you and your team for all the help that you guys have given me. I, it's been a great experience working together. So Yeah, it's been exciting to see you grow as a podcast host. And the, the fact that it still is lighting you up and, and you've made it past the pod fade mark, which is typically around seven, when people decide, whoa, this is <laughs> a lot of work. Uh, it's been an, an honor to, to kind of support you and the show. And uh, I'm looking forward to meeting in person at a podcasting conference soon. Or hopefully Minneapolis. I have a good friend that I need to come and visit in Minneapolis soon. So, hopefully. so if we manage to make it up there, I'll give you a call. Well, you know it's got to be before winter kicks in. <laughs> <So> <laughs> if not, we'll be on the Skyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't done that yet, apparently. So for the benefit of the listener, you can navigate most of downtown Minneapolis through Skyways, which is pretty fun. So if folks want to connect with you and uh, learn more about the show, where's the best place for to direct them to? Yeah, the best place is if you go to al4ep.com, with, spelled with the number four, which is a shortening of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. Dot com that will redirect you to authentic leadership for everyday people.com and then i am on linkedin and on twitter at uh, a on twitter and and uh, on instagram on a l 4 edp because al 4 ep was taken and, and to make things easier we'll make, have all those links in the show notes for folks to connect with you so thanks again for your time i really enjoyed it thank you Thanks again to Dino for coming on the show. Always appreciate it when guests take time out of their busy schedules to share their stories. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 281. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. CedarSoil.com for his fantastic catalog of music. And don't forget to support our sponsors, Focusrite and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlett 2i2 Pro. Check out the full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right if you made it this far no doubt you're waiting for the retention hashtag let's go with authentic dino and you can tag us at podcast underscore junkies and dino at 
DG Cataneo, that's D-G-C-A-T-T-A-N-E-O. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week.